And we are alive. Alive. <laughs> I'm going to try to do the chase. We have a guest, a new friend of ours we met recently through another friend of ours, Andrew. And I sometimes like to give long-winded intros, but this man needs to introduce himself because he's got so many things going on. He's <laughs> a musician, an upcoming Bob Dylan impersonator. <laughs> he's an activist. He's just got it all. So <laughs> let's welcome Gift Schumer. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, that's probably like one of the best intros I've ever heard. It's kind of hard for me to, to introduce myself after such an intro. Maybe just start with a Bob Dylan impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> you play harmonica, right? I play harmonica. Um, I am not a virtuoso by any stretch. Um, so that's why some people, if they Google me, one of the articles that will come up will say that Gift Chuma says that the harmonica is not sexy. So, um, yeah, don't believe fake news. <laughs> you are here to prove otherwise. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'm a musician, I'm a singer, songwriter, um, disability rights activist, um, etc. We can put the dots after that. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's, that, that's me. Uh, and I'm just so happy to be here and thank you for inviting me guys. Uh, this is super cool. Yeah, no, thanks for, thanks for coming. Well. You know, this is a disability podcast. You mentioned that you are a disability activist. What mm -hmm. got you involved in this space? Wow, what got me involved into this space? Um, I think just purely out of selfish reasons. Um, <laughs> I simply wanted to access things without experiencing any barriers. What a concept. Right? <laughs> I just wanted, I just wanted to live. Um, <laughs> it's not too much to ask. <laughs> Free life, you know, you know, so yeah, that's, that's, that's legit what I wanted. And the way it all started is, um, I was in, uh, I was in college and I just started, you know, like in college, you, you're like reaching your, young adult phase, you're like 18 years old. And um yeah, and I found out that there was no fire evacuation procedures for wheelchair users, for people with physical disabilities that like we basically wait there and sing and sing kumbaya and we barbecue into nice crisps. Um <laughs> so for those who I don't know you or can't see this because that is true audio only yes you are a wheelchair user i'm a wheelchair i'm a wheelchair user wow i, I see the importance now of doing unique new york so yeah i'm a wheelchair user uh i am black uh wear glasses i with an african background um born in zimbabwe I uh, spent my teenage years here in Canada. Um, well, pre, like the intro of teenage years. I moved here when I was 12. So towards my last, uh, yeah, kid uh, phase. Um, and um, yeah, and I've been living in Canada for a little bit uh, over 20 years. Yeah. So the way I really started getting into the disability rights activism space, like my first introduction was, you know, uh, fire evacuations. So we all know that, you know, when you're in school, um, there's fire drills all the time. Um, and there was this fateful day where, you know, there was a fire drill and um, I found out that like, I'm not leaving the building. <laughs> That's the protocol that I just need to drive my chair and wait at the closest staircase and just, um, you know, wait for the fire people to show up to tell me whether they should pick me up and evacuate me or 
stay there because consider it safe. So that's a little bit unsettling, right? Because you're not getting that opportunity to actually really practice escaping the building. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, why don't the rest of the people go to like, you know, another wing of the floor that doesn't have fire and wait there to see if it's safe or not, you know? So that frustration started from there. And I just started looking into uh, uh, protocols around evacuation for people with disabilities. And then that's basically, um, you know, like snowballed into advocating for accessible transit, public transit. Uh, for folks with disabilities in Montreal. So I am based in Montreal, by the way, uh, for those of you who don't know just for context. Um, so yeah. Um, so that's how my, my introduction into disability rights kind of began. And I started just taking on different things around activism or accessibility uh, as time went on. Do you think that uh, as you started doing disability advocacy, activism um unique new york was there (laughs) a point where you're like okay i'm actually starting to tackle some of these problems we're making some progress here i see a light at the end of the tunnel or did it feel like the longer you were doing it the bigger this the the mountain was to climb and it's just going to be this sort of never-ending ever-growing Problem. Like, did, did it feel like you know in the movies where they use that effect where they like hold the camera back and zoom yeah. out at the same time? So it yeah, just feels yeah. like something's getting further and further away. <laughs> I would say like there were moments where like yes, I was seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and then as I was getting close, there was the light would slowly diminish again. Right. So it's like. You get really, really close and then like, nope, no, 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 you're getting too close now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's been the journey, you know, it's like depending on who is in charge at the time within that bureaucratic structure, whatever it is, um, they have their own agendas and they have their own ideas of how far they want to, uh, see those agendas to, uh, to be met. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's been a tough journey. It's been a tough journey to say the least, but there has been quite a bit of progress, um, throughout, uh, throughout time. What did you study in a post-secondary gift? Yeah. Um, so I studied, uh, sociology and I did a minor in law, society and justice. Um, cause I had that kind of mindset of wanting to become a lawyer, um, uh, when I graduated high school, that was basically like my trajectory, I was like, I'm going to become an immigration lawyer. I was not even thinking about like, you know, human rights, like, or like disability rights, you know, law and stuff. It was mainly immigration lawyer, uh, because of what I'd experienced, um, uh, as an immigrant here in Canada. So that's been like, uh, my journey and also background as well. In my own sort of, uh, upbringing and, path uh growing up in university Mm -hmm. there were all kinds of instances where i encountered situations where i could have been an advocate for increased accessibility Mm. but for whatever reason i always felt like i should have to figure out some way to overcome the accessibility obstacle myself like some sort of meritocratic or some little voice in my head that pushed me to try to be independent. Like the whole experiment of going to post-secondary was to prove to my parents and my family that I could survive, (laughs) basically. And so I never really understood the importance of using your voice or your platform or your words to try to push for a more inclusive environment. And I think I struggled a lot with that, but there's like a kind of internalized uh, or a pervasive attitude among disabled people, I think, Mm. to accept that they don't have access Mm. or to kind of maybe hope that our people around us, our caretakers will step in and and Mm. fill the gap. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's just not the case. But Mm. we're also not really given the autonomy to uh, change our environments ourselves or I, it's hard to explain. I mean, mm. 
it's a never ending struggle. Mm, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think like for me, like what really pushed me into really like getting into the activism phase is because I grew up in a country where uh, resources for folks with disabilities were not easily accessible. Mm -hmm. And you had to fight your way through to get something, whether it's through private donors and such. And also, like when I moved here, my mom basically told me, was like, hey, I'm not going to always be around. So you got to like figure out to do stuff on your own. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that was kind of like the, the, the tough love that I received. And that kind of like pushed me, it propelled me to, yeah, to get into that activism space uh, because, yeah, because those things were not easily available to me. And the fact that, like, oh, my mom's not going to always be around. So got to figure this stuff out now. <laughs> I had this very similar realization right before I moved to university. I, mm. my parents had done all of my care before mm. that. And then this sort of light switched on in my head and I realized, or maybe my parents told me, maybe some combination of both, but it was made clear to me that I needed to figure out how I was going to navigate the world of caregiving Mm -hmm. independently and like once i moved to university my parents are gonna be there to help me so i made what ended up being a pretty good decision to start getting caregivers earlier than i mm -hmm. actually had to so i could sort of transition uh, more more smoothly out of that so i was curious what your experience is with that what, like how was that transition for you did you just one day start getting your caregivers to help you fully or how does that look for you yeah um so the way it worked for me it's like so my i grew up my mom's a single mom right mm -hmm. so she was working a lot so it meant that like during the hours that i needed care she was at work so it meant that i had to have caregivers and with that she gave me the responsibility to manage the finances right to keep track of the excel sheet of like when everyone needs to be paid how many hours did we use this week mm -hmm. etc like yes she was the one like sending them the money but in terms of keeping track of the books i had to do that and the the disability funds that i was getting back then because like i didn't get to you know work at mcdonald's or work at a telemarketing mm -hmm from like you know other kids without physical disabilities um so like my disability benefits they were going towards paying for the internet at home <laughs> internet and cable at home um so i was not living for free and also like managing um managing the the, the payments for my caregivers so that was kind of like the baby steps like introduction into starting to handling kind of like business on my own. That that's really not a trivial job. Like you're essentially yeah. payroll for your own care. Yeah. I mean, I guess it helps you understand the value of other people's time and yeah. the impact of your care upon the people like your your mom, the people you live with. Absolutely. Well we have a similar program here in Ontario called mm -hmm. direct funding. Basically the government will give you a certain amount of money every month, and then you can then allocate it to pay for attendant yeah. care. Uh, yeah. Is there something like that there in Montreal? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The hours are limited, though, per week that yeah. you're given. It's not a whole lot, so I had access to, like, something between, like, 27 and 30 hours a week. Okay. Something like that um, of care. Was that enough for you, or did you have no. to supplement it? No, it was not enough. Okay. Um, so basically we had to strategically figure out like which are the crucial hours that i need care oh. while my mother is at work and then maximize on those on those hours did you have to also strategically decide which parts of your care you wouldn't do like you had to actually forego certain parts of your just personal care yeah yeah absolutely so like they wouldn't do let's say showers Okay. Right. Uh, cause I was not too comfortable and I was kind of a bit traumatized because, um, 
I've had like friends who've had accidents yeah. while they're taking a shower with caregivers. So I was not fully comfortable with that. And like, I'm, I'm very particular with my showers too. Same. Yeah, I like to be showered a very specific way. Mm-hmm. So like really, I was not ready for the shower part. Um, so they were not doing that. They would give me like, you know, uh, you know, partial wash, like bed wash, mm-hmm. um, and stuff. And, um, and, you know, preparing breakfast, you know, yeah, supper was not prepared. Like I would, I needed to have my mom's supper. <laughs> breakfast I can deal with because you can't really screw up breakfast, you know? Uh, it's okay if like they made breakfast for me. Um, but, um, yeah, so like the, those are the kind of like care that were like kind of like off limits, if that, if I could say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, a, one, a stretch of my life after middle school when I had an orthopedic surgery and I had mm-hmm. to be showered by a care worker who was like external to our home for a number of weeks. Mm-hmm. And I remember it being like that, the very concept of, of a stranger helping me shower was, up there, I mean, the whole experience of the surgery was one thing, but just that invasion of privacy was yeah. extremely hard for me to understand. And mm-hmm. um, it just also being a teenager at the time and totally uncomfortable with your 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 body and everything else. Mm-hmm. Like, it, what, what do you mean? A perfect stranger is going to shower me? What is this? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't I just have an awful surgery? Like, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Can we also talk about how humiliating and unsatisfying? a bed bath is oh my god oh my gosh absolutely it feels like you are a stray dog <laughs> getting hosed off it, like in a vet's office before you get euthanized it, it's like a sponge bath is 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 like a, a it's like a sarcastic shower it's a it's yeah. a joke <laughs> the worst you can barely get the sleep out of your eye, let alone like deal with body odor or anything else. It's like you wanted a shower. That's cute. Here's a damp cloth. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> you guys are jokes. Like this is the best way I've ever heard anyone describe like a sponge bath. Like that's oh, it's the worst. It, it is absolutely the worst. I I couldn't agree with you more. Um. So like, okay, my. First, like, kind of like, quote unquote, I'm going to put air quotes here of like traumatic experience with caregiving is, okay, so keep in mind, when I was living in Zimbabwe, I didn't have caregivers, right? It was family members that were providing my my care. So it was like either my aunts, my cousins, you know, um, they would provide my care. That's all we had, you know? And um Moving here and experiencing caregivers and having that invasion of privacy in every way possible was a huge shock. But the biggest shock for me was whenever someone was assisting me, they were using gloves, medical gloves. Mm -hmm. That was a huge shocker for me because, you know, my family never used gloves when they would help me. So my initial reaction was like, oh my gosh, am I that disgusting? You know, I didn't view it from like a sanitary, like health perspective where I'm like, oh, you know, like this is like, you know, good that like, to protect me from them or blah, 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 vice versa. Or standard operating procedure. Exactly. You know, because like that was not a thing, you know. And even like the school that I went to in Zimbabwe, it was a school that had students with disabilities and there were caregivers in the school that would assist students. They didn't use gloves neither because like, you know, things like gloves, buying gloves are expensive. And I'm sure you guys like shop for gloves all the time, but you know, for good quality gloves, you're spending like 30 bucks a box, yeah. you know, but yeah. Anyways, like I felt disgusting. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like, am I, am I, do they think I'm infectious? Do they think <laughs> my disability is going to infect them? You know, yeah. it really, <laughs> it really affected me. For like a solid month or two until I understood, you know, and I was 12 years old, you know, uh, so that was the big shocker, uh, for me, uh, 
uh, being introduced into your caregiving. Do you feel that your perception of that has changed over time, or do you still think every time a, a caregiver busts out of love, you're like, oh, she thinks I'm gross? <laughs> Um, no, I, I don't think that anymore. Like, it's actually a relief um, because, okay. especially now with COVID, it's like, please wear the gloves. Like, <laughs> yeah, wear two you. pairs of gloves, if you will, you know? And it's funny, like, last year, I got into an argument uh, with one of the caregivers that were from an agency, right? Because like, there was a lot of, like, short staff happening, so I was not getting my regular caregivers anymore. So I was getting these random like caregivers who I've never met before. And when they came in, even just feeding me supper, uh, one of them like didn't take their gloves on, you know, they didn't put your gloves on. And I had to like basically like have a talk with them. That's like, yo, <laughs> you are working in like 10 different houses on a given day. Please wear your gloves. You know, we're in the middle yeah. of a pandemic for God's sake, you know? It always feels weirdly confrontational. I have that situation sometimes where I'm like, did you wash your hands? And I, yeah. I, sometimes I know that they didn't, and they'll just say that yeah. they did. And then yeah. I'll have to be like, oh, do you mind just washing them again? And then I make up some reason. I'll be like, I think I'm sick or like... Yeah, because otherwise you're the bad guy, right? It, there are two things that really get me about this whole situation, is that when you are inviting... Uh, new caretakers into your home, people you don't have an established rapport with. Mm -hmm. Essentially, your home becomes a work environment. Yeah, and so there, there's an implied like hierarchy in all work environments. Um, you are the one who is technically supposed to administer your care, but then at the same time, there's this air of authority that your attendant care workers have over you. Yeah. And this sort of assumption that they may not even have to respect your boundaries with respect to gloves or yeah. whatever other like intimate details of your care plan are. Mm -hmm. And that's it's really profoundly stressful. It's it's funny because I I still gift kind of like you're saying view like when an attendant grabs a glove for some mundane activity like putting gel in my hair i'm like okay i i guess maybe you don't want it on your hands but then i have to deal with the terrible feeling of gloves yeah. running through your hair just oh, pulls on your head it's the yep. worst yeah but i'm like yeah you know I, i'd rather you wear gloves here and everywhere than not because I have the same the opposite reaction when someone doesn't wear gloves. I'm like, wait, does that mean you're never wearing gloves up anywhere? Think of the other contexts in which people wear gloves, like on the job. It's like either colonoscopy. Yeah, colonoscopy. You're like a nurse in a hospital environment, or you're like, what do they call it? There's like fumigators or yeah. uh pest control yeah. people, I assume they wear gloves. Yeah. Boxers. Box oh that's true. Boxers wear gloves. So <laughs> people either wear gloves like before they're about to deal with something hazardous or yeah. partake in pugilism. <laughs> oh my gosh. Lot of mercy. Yeah. You guys are two jokes. Well, this this is good therapy. Do you find gift that beyond caregiving mm -hmm. specifically? How is your impression of Canada's braggadocious medical system compared or stacked up to like like obviously i'm assuming living in zimbabwe everyone talks about how great canada's healthcare system is yeah um of course yeah i actually had a discussion with with andrew about this right um when i do comparison it's like I gotta evaluate, or I gotta use the, the measuring stick that's appropriate to that environment. Right. Right. So if let's say I'm looking at Canada's healthcare system and the caregiving system for people with disabilities, you know, if I compare it to other Western countries, I'm like, you know what, we can do better. Sure. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like for for Western standards. It's okay. Yeah. You know, like, what should be a good blueprint? That's like a Scandinavian countries. 
look how they're doing that. You know, look right. at the models, the, the, the unconventional models that they're taking to when it comes to care. You know what I mean? Um, what happens to like, you know, us having, you know, money that's like, uh, equated to like 24 seven care, but we manage how that 24 hours is used. Maybe right. part of that 24 hour, 24 seven care could be even used for vacations. When you go out on vacation, right? You may not need 24 seven care, uh, 24 seven care, sorry, um, on, um, on a daily basis. But that you could actually bank that time for like a vacation when you want to just like peace out and like, you know, go to Paris or something, you know, <laughs> for two weeks. I think you're mistaken. Uh, disabled people are not supposed to leave their homes. <laughs> that, is, that is true. That is true. I, I was going to say care is a very serious matter. There's no such thing as care for the sake of recreation. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> but that's an incredibly good point. Like, Anthony, I hope it's okay that I mention this. You've been trying to plan such a trip with your friends, mm. but it's hard to find a care worker for yeah. that purpose. Yeah. And like you have the resources, like you've earned the vacation, so to speak, hmm. and you like want to pull through with it, but it's it's hard logistically to do so, right? Right. Uh, can, can I share can I share a strategy that I've been using? Because like I have the travel bug and I love traveling Please. extensively. And I am no way rich or wealthy in, in any manner. But what I have found to be the most cost-effective and easiest way to travel is I don't travel with professional caregivers. I travel with friends. I travel with friends who are comfortable to provide that caregiving to me. Sure. And the way I compensate or like, you know, um, take into account their time and energy required to provide that care while I'm while we're vacationing is that I offer a free vacation for them. Right. So I pay for the flight, the accommodation, and all expenses paid for while we're gallivanting, you know, and they give me free care. Mm -hmm. So that's been like my approach. It's expensive, but it's at the same time been the most like cost efficient way where like both parties are winning in a way yeah i think that's a great model i try to do the same thing mm. because like even even if you're bringing a caregiver and you're paying them that's going to rack up cost anyway like mm -hmm. financially it's probably the same thing to pay for their trip versus just pay for their time mm -hmm. i also i don't know for me traveling is such a friendly recreational activity that mm -hmm. i wouldn't want to just bring like some random stranger exactly. that I don't have any rapport with. Because yeah. then we're traveling together and it doesn't really feel like we're traveling together, you know? Yeah. yeah. It just feels like someone following me and my friends around. Yeah, you're yeah. traveling in parallel. Yeah. I, I was yeah. just thinking about, like, imagine if you planned this great exotic trip to a location you've always wanted to go to your whole life mm -hmm. and you're disabled. So the, the prospect of travel in and of itself is super novel and you're mm -hmm. super excited to go. And then the care worker that you have to choose to go with is like the coworker that you've interacted with the least at your place of employment or something. I don't think I'd go on the trip. I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you wouldn't enjoy yourself. No. The whole time you'd just be like, trying to build a bridge between the two of you and yeah. build some rapport, establish some kind of connection. Yeah. And it wouldn't even matter where you are anymore. Like you could be in mm -hmm. Spain or Australia and you'd still just be stuck in your own head. <laughs> no facts. I I agree. Cause you know, like I as we've seen that like, traveling is often used by couples as a way to see whether they are good together oh that's super interesting yeah that's very true yeah because like when you're traveling right you're pushing each other's boundaries quite a bit right because yeah. you're going to be exhausted right you are going to be tired you're going to be dealing with jet lag you're going to be dealing with frustrations of just traveling 
you know, and most couples, when they want to see whether they want to take their relationship to like the next level, they go on like an international travel. And uh, imagine if you're bringing a caregiver you don't really jive well with. Yeah, that's an incredibly good point. Like, yeah. it, it's a, it's a scenario where you you have to deal with time pressure in a lot of situations. Uh, yeah. You have to figure out where you are. Like, you have to yeah. navigate together, which is a hard problem to solve with yeah. another person. You have yeah. to share a bathroom with them yeah. in a strange new environment. So yeah. there's all kinds of like contexts in which you're seeing this person in a different light and it that yeah. pressure like sort of reveals more of who you are <laughs> yeah how great would the disabled version of the amazing race be where oh, every <laughs> contestant is a pair one disabled person <laughs> and one caregiver but the caregiver doesn't get to like add input they just follow them around and like help them get on the planes Good and stuff. God. Tony, that's a, a genius idea. We should totally propose that to uh, CBC or whoever. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so funny? Like whoever can figure out how to make an inaccessible bus accessible to get to the inaccessible volcano first. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that would be, be so wild. Fun. Sign me up. You should pitch that to CBC. <laughs> with the with the production crew, they would also presumably be majority disabled as well, right? Bam. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, but they couldn't be more disabled than the contestant they're following. Because then you get onto the plane and you're like, all right, we're here. Wait, let's just wait for the camera guy to get his wheelchair. <laughs> but, but then that brings up the like the philosophical question of how do you weigh one person's disability next to another? Ooh. The disability scale. <laughs> the disability <laughs> scale. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> I mean, it would be fun, though, to have to just figure that out as part of it. Mm -hmm. And then you see your camera guy and you're like, all right, I think we can make this one work. <laughs> I feel like we could just pull all of our disabled circles together and, yes. and actually start an amazing race Canada. Yeah, Absolutely. I, as long as we don't fu fucking start in Thunder Bay, Ontario, because I can barely <laughs> even leave my house. So I have yeah. no idea how I would race to anywhere. <laughs> hey, we, we just need to call our buddy Andrew. Does anyone have him on speed dial? We're just like, <laughs> yo, Andrew, we have a show suggestion for you. <laughs> oh, he would so be into it. We need we need Canada's most prominent disabled influencer. Exactly. You know, he's he's our biggest influencer in Canada. So you know, <laughs> he could host it. Exactly. You know, gift. Do you have a favorite place that you've traveled to? I ooh, I have two favorite places. Is that cheating? Yes, it's cheating, eh? But we'll allow it. Okay, thank you. Phew. <laughs> My gosh. Um, but yeah, I have two. Australia and Japan. Oh, how fascinating. I've always wanted to go to Japan. Japan oh. must be so accessible. It's very accessible. Very, very accessible and so nice. I went to Tokyo a few years ago and I enjoyed myself so much. Um, it's, I've never experienced such high level of like autonomy where I could just like wake up and be like, okay, today I want to do this and this and this. And I don't need to coordinate my transport and figure out like, you know, oh, which taxi is accessible or how to get there. I would just hop on on the underground train and go wherever I wanted. It was honestly amazing, amazing like truly amazing. Um, the only downside I'd say is like, you know, like some buildings are like tiny, they're like narrow. So my chair is very wide. Like it's like, you know, made for like North America. <laughs> <laughs> so like, it was tough at times to get through like tight spaces. Uh, but in terms of like just going out and about, it's honestly pretty dope. Um, Australia is pretty good. Um, it's, it's very hot though, for my liking. I would love that. Very, very hot. And I'm black, guys. I grew up in Zimbabwe, you know what I'm saying? Like, you all <laughs> would be like, you should be comfortable with this. But no, 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 no human can be comfortable with that. Like, it's scorching hot. Australia is hotter than Zimbabwe? It's hot. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, do you want to hear a joke? Yes, please. While I was in Australia, I had to wear sunscreen. 
as a black person, okay? As a black person, I never have to wear any sunscreen. <laughs> did, they, did that, like, hurt your ego? It did. It did. Because I actually got sunburned. Oh, wow. I was like, how is this possible? Did you feel, like, personally slighted by the Australian sun? I was. I was. <laughs> and I had to buy this, like, spe- special, like, sunscreen. Because I did my I did my exchange, because I did my student exchange as my last semester in my undergrad in Australia. Mm-hmm. And, like, we'd done the orientation, and they were told, you know, telling us that, like, oh, you need to you need to bring a sunscreen with you, blah, 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 blah. But we highly recommend that you buy sunscreen from Australia because the one we <laughs> use will not work. I'm like, you guys are like, kidding me. I'm not going to wear any sunscreen. You need Australian-grade sunscreen. <laughs> yeah, you need Australian-grade sunscreen. Like, for real. So I started using sunscreen there for the very first time in my life. I'm so sorry to hear that. Say <laughs> <laughs> so just something. But it still ended up being your second or tied for first favorite place to go. Yeah, yeah, it ended up being, you know. I mean, like, my my identity, so my journey going to Australia, my identity was actually, you know, challenged in so many ways. Um, so first of all, I had to do kind of like uh, a physical, a medical physical where, like, they to check, like, am I going to be a good crip while I'm in Australia? Am I not going to get too <laughs> sick and cost the government money? So, you know, I had to go through a whole physical to say, like, yeah, he's fit to travel. Um, and while they were doing that, um, I had to see uh, a, neuro, a, neuro, a neurology doctor mm-hmm. um, and, like, just to confirm my disability. And, like, as they were doing, like, genetic testing, uh, they were like, wait, like, we think you might not really have muscular dystrophy. And then I was like, what are you saying? Because keep in mind, all my life, I had lived as someone with MD, you know, like some form of MD, but it was right. not specified which type. Like some people were saying, like, oh, maybe you have Duchenne or you like atrophy or whatever. Like I was, there was a lot of ambiguity because of like the way uh, because of the symptoms I was experiencing growing up and blah, 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 blah. So now this doctor tells me that you might not have muscular dystrophy. Guys, my world turned upside down. Yeah. It's basically like being told that you are not black, you're actually white, <laughs> and everything that you've associated yourself with throughout your life doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah. Like a fundamental foundation of your self-concept. Yes. Like, wow. keep, like keep in mind, I have like I've been like doing like this muscular dystrophy fundraising events, you know, <laughs> raising money throughout all the years, you know, thousands of dollars, you know, be like muscular dystrophy research, research. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and now I find out that I might not have muscular dystrophy. So I was really freaking out. And then I get to Australia, and I find out that I can actually get burnt by the sun. <laughs> <laughs> That's a killer to my, to, you know, <laughs> to my ego and identity. I was like, what is going on to me right now? Like, who am I? You know, maybe that should be like my next book or my first book. Yeah. <laughs> but as Anthony said, it was still like your top two favorite yeah. places to go. It was. It was. Well, you found yourself. I found myself. It was a journey. <laughs> journey for self-discovery, you know? To be honest, that begs the question, what else you have endured while traveling? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. What is your ranking system for what makes a good destination? Is it accessibility first? Is it culture first? Is it food, people? Hmm. What I like to Japan... Was like it's very accessible, but it's also multicultured. Weirdly enough, yeah. right? There's like lots of people from different parts of the world, and if like I'm in like a town and I'm like the only black guy, I don't feel weird. No one is staring at me. No one is asking me like microaggressing questions. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm just like because like that was part of my experiment, right? Going to Japan is just to see two things: 
how are black people being treated in Japan and how are disabled people being treated in Japan, right? People with physical disabilities. That was basically like my mission, like, okay, what's the, what's the situation there, you know, like, and also how accessible it is. And honestly, I've never been to a place where no one is staring at me. And in Japan, I was able to move out and about without like any kid or any adult just staring at me, you know? And I'm sure you guys within Canada, you've had like adults stare at you <laughs> uncomfortably, you know, and such. Uh, and like, yeah, but I didn't experience that. And like one could argue like, okay, you were there for like two weeks, but you can, you can tell a lot in two weeks. I was just going to say that's a perfect sample amount of time to form a, a preliminary judgment or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so, um, yeah. But yeah, Japan and Australia, top two countries. Hmm. Hmm. So feels like a good segue because before the we started recording, we had chatted a bit about you and your experiences. And one of the things that came up was your diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And you have made a decision that mm-hmm. I find very interesting. And the decision is basically to not ever be explicit about your diagnosis. And unless you and I are homies. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. And so I'm curious what brought you to that decision. I was honestly tired of people coming to a conclusion of what they think they know about that disability. Um, I was tired of people's prejudices uh, because like most people, was, you know, whenever I disclose my disability, they'll automatically think of like their, their friend Frank's son or daughter <laughs> who like had the disability and had like the worst life ever and they died because of this disability <laughs> or they had, you know, <laughs> Like, or they, 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 they were inspiring and like beat all odds despite how severe that disability was, you know? So I was tired of that narrative and I wanted to take that power and remove it from them and just disclose my barriers without disclosing my diagnosis. Because when I ever disclosed my diagnosis, it meant that Someone comes to a conclusion of what they think they know about it, or it also pulls heartstrings for them to feel sorry for me, where in fact, I don't even have like a pitiful life, (laughs) you know? So it was like a way for me to kind of like have power of my story and, um, and be in control of like my narrative. It's really an interesting philosophy and well, to be honest, one that I've never heard before, I know a lot of people with disabilities and almost it's almost diagnosis first with them. You know, mm-hmm. like it's almost one of the first things that comes up when, especially when you hang out with other disabled folks, it's like, hey, what you got? It's kind of like being in jail and being like, what are you in here for? <laughs> but you're right in that it is almost like a dog breed in that as soon as you say it, you're like, oh, true. Like, my friend has a pit bull and he murdered yeah. a kid. That's crazy. Yeah. Or, or like, oh, every lab I know is really smart. And it's like, well, now I have to be a smart lab or a murderous pit bull. <laughs> there you go. So you get it now. Do you find that it's working for you, though? Oh, yeah, it really is. It makes people a little bit uncomfortable. You know, <laughs> it really does. Yeah, because they're like, um, well, I asked you a question. <laughs> yeah, like Tony was okay when I asked him what his disability was, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, but uh, honestly, it's been very empowering, especially when it came to uh, television interviews, any media interviews, it's been very empowering because a lot of journalists, their agenda most of the time is like to find out what your diagnosis is, yeah. and then they shape their story around the specificities of your diagnosis and, you know, you know, control and have, you know, certain emotions that they, 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 they pull out from their audience. And I was tired of that. 
It's like the American Idol uh, contestant vignettes that they have. Yes. <laughs> I mean, where they always want to make uh, the narrative around the singer deeply tragic and like engrossing in a really uh, yeah. disappointing way. Yeah. But I actually love love uh, your reasoning behind this because mm-hmm. it is true that there are very few branches of that discussion that we've all had that are really pleasant to have because a lot mm-hmm. of times people will take that information and <clears throat> carry the yeah. discussion in their own direction. Straight up. And, you know, even like within like my crip friends, right? If like I'm first like, you know, starting to know you, I won't disclose my disability either. So like I don't discriminate guys. So I don't just do it to like normies, able-bodied people, but I also do it to my fellow Crips if I don't know them well yet. And it's because like, if we are going to be connecting, I want us to connect on our personal level, you know, on our personal interests, our personal, you know, drives and stuff. And I don't want like our sort of quote unquote common struggle to be the main variable that connects us. like. Oh, you have, you have, uh, MD or you have a uh, cerebral palsy. Okay. Oh, wow. So like you experienced this, like the way, like, for example, we've been talking tonight, right? In our episode, right? We've been talking about events. We haven't even been talking about like, you know, the, 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 the things that, that, um, that connect us related to disability, but we've been talking about our experiences and how we've been navigating life. And not even once did we mention our, our disabilities. And to me, that's like a lot more interesting. And as we get to know, you know, each other and stuff, then that's when I, you know, I start to be like, okay, so this is, this is where it's at. But yeah, so it's been super interesting for me and I'm enjoying the journey. And truthfully, I've only been doing this for the last three years. I think it's smart because even, even if like I have a few different friends with CP. Jamie's one of them, hmm. and they all like sure there are some things that are common, but most yeah. everyone with CP has a different experience. Just like everyone yeah. with any sort of identifier has a different experience. Like it doesn't yeah. sum you up. It might give someone some lens to look to, look at you through, but. That might not be the best lens to see you. Yeah, facts. I think that's a great approach. Definitely one I'm going to think about a lot more because, I mean, I'm not, I don't introduce myself and go, hi, I'm Anthony, I have SMA. But I did for this podcast, and it's very much been a part of our discussions here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it does beg the question, like, should we? Because you're right, even if, if, if I tell someone what SMA is, that doesn't mean they're going to know what yeah. it can do or what it can't do or what somebody else, you know, it mm-hmm. it doesn't actually add that much to the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, that's been the journey I've been taking to kind of like shift that narrative and just have a different narrative that would lead us, if it's meant to lead us to the same destination as disclosing disability, it will lead us there. If it doesn't, then we will go to another path, you know. Um, so it's been really great too. Are you actively dating? Because if you are, I imagine that must come up a lot in your dating life. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm actively dating and single. Hello. Find your gift. Send me a DM. There you go. Shout out. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yes, yes. Um, in the dating world, it's been a challenge where like, you know, women would ask me, like, what do you have? It's like the first question. Yeah. The first question for me has been, can you have sex? The first question? That's the first question. Can you have sex? That's worse. Yeah. The waitress br- brings the club soda around, and that's the first question. <laughs> first have- question. Yeah. And then the second question is the diagnosis. The second question is the diagnosis. Um, and I'm not saying that's been all of my experiences. I'm just saying like the bunch of the experiences I've had before connecting with someone where I've had genuine connection where it wasn't about my disability. That's been the case for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been there many times it, to the point where 
when I get through a few days or a few weeks of talking to someone after a few dates, hmm. and they still haven't explicitly asked me about my disability or like sex, mm-hmm. I, I start to get confused. I'm like, <laughs> you do know, like if it's still we're just talking online. I'm yeah. like, you saw my bio, right? You know that I'm disabled. Yeah. Like, I started to get in my own head, like, they must have missed it, because how could they not have asked me such intrusive questions by now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, the, the positive interaction that I really enjoyed was, like, after a week or so of chatting, um, like, one girl, like, really asked it so, like, like so nicely. She was like, Hey, if this makes you uncomfortable or if you don't want to talk about it, just tell me to shut up and mind my own business. But I'm curious, you know, like, were you born with a disability or did you develop it at a later stage? And I really appreciated that, that, you know, they gave me that room and space to actually say, yes, I'm ready to talk about this with you or no, I'm not. And they've also given you a chance to build a rapport beyond that so that it's not just because even like that is a very good way to approach it, but Mm -hmm. it's still pretty annoying if that was the first thing that came out. Yeah. And then I've had like the opposite, right? Where like someone wants to be my carer instead of my lover, (laughs) right? Where like the person's like, oh, I don't see disability, right? Like. You know, I, I, I'm a carer by nature, you know, like this doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me that I need to do these things for you, you know? So like, it's like, yeah, they're trying to mirror well, but like, that's been like the other crappy part of like my dating experience. It's either, you know, someone asking me, can I have sex or someone telling me that they don't see disability from the get go. Neither extreme feels authentic. Mm-hmm. I, I I appreciate that acts of service and caregiving is a love language for many people. Mm-hmm. But when you, the way you approach it can feel like you're just objectifying us yeah. rather yeah. than like showing us love in your unique way. Yeah, straight up. Yeah. So that's been, yeah, that's been my experience with that. What about you guys? How, I know, I know you guys are the ones interviewing, but. I, I, I'm curious to <laughs> to hear what your experiences within the dating scene has been like. I can't date someone uh, from a dating app. I've learned oh. uh, because I I just find that the I need to, and maybe this is convoluted, but I need to develop a a friendship with the person before it can kind of graduate into hmm. something more intimate. Because <clears throat> I just find that the transactional nature of dating apps is mm-hmm. kind of troublesome. You feel like you're shopping for a partner. And uh, I, I know it works for most people, but mm. it, it it just doesn't really work for me. I feel incredibly awkward. And mm. the, the whole idea that you're meeting with somebody for the express intent of sharing something eventually extremely intimate with them feels unnatural. I prefer mm. to meet people through my social circle or uh, real world connections, but that's also not feasible and why I haven't had a good date in several mm. years. <laughs> mm. So, I mean, I can't, my methodology is not working, but the <laughs> reason that I am hesitant to date mm-hmm. is just because of, you know, shitty experiences yeah. with dating apps. No, I, I I hear you definitely. Yeah, and what about you, Tony? Um, I mean, I agree with Jamie in that I prefer to meet someone, quote unquote, organically, mm-hmm. uh, and just have that rom com meet you moment <laughs> where you get to know each other and then you develop feelings, and uh, that has happened in the past, but I especially with the pandemic, it just isn't feasible. I'm on the dating apps and it's hit and miss. I definitely had some great experiences, um, met some great people, met and made friends um, out of it. And then sometimes it does go slowly. You know, you realize up front that initial intimacy, you you have to like just get there with people sometimes. And other, I've also been definitely objectified for my disability. Sometimes mm. I'm 
open to it and sometimes I'm not. And yeah. just yeah. usually for very shallow reasons. But it's a minefield and it's not easy. I don't wish it on myself or my enemies. Mm-hmm. But it sort of feels like a necessary evil. When someone treats you as a person first who happens to be disabled, it's so obvious compared to when someone treats you as a disabled person. Hmm. Yeah. In, in dating apps, you're quite often like a baseball card, like a collection yeah. of traits. And that's yeah. how someone is evaluating you. So you don't have a chance to be humanized. And I just feel like the the default asexualization of disabled people makes yeah. like joining a disabled or joining a dating app that much more difficult because the intended purpose or one of the main intended purposes is to find like an intimate partner and then people are like well i never even thought that like you know your your dick works yeah or something like that no one's ever said that to my face but i know that's mm-hmm. what they're thinking Mm-hmm. And so I find it vulnerable to even have to like confront that with a stranger that I'm mm-hmm. sort of trying to date. And I also don't like, I don't like feeling like I'm uh, being an imposition on the person, mm-hmm. like forcing them to evaluate whether or not they would date a disabled person. Right. Like I've, I've just, I've felt that when I'm, I've been on a first date, like I felt the awkwardness of that. And mm-hmm. when I'm able to instead pursue somebody who I, that, who I have an established rapport with, like all of that awkwardness is not there because they've yeah. seen me like in my natural life. And right. so they know that I'm a person and that I have those needs too, and that yeah. I like them. You know what yeah. I mean? So a lot of my trepidation about dating is just internalized ableism, yeah. like my assumption about other people's assumption yeah. of what my life is like. <clears throat> so yeah. I overthink the fuck out of it, if you haven't noticed. Mm. And it's 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 hard. It's like yeah. it's one of the hardest problems I think of of disability and of being. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think dating apps are easy or like always great for most people but it just adds this layer of complexity where you feel like you have to find a way to separate yourself in a positive way because you're so obviously already separated in a societally negative way but to begin with no no straight up straight up and you know like i like real talk like i find myself in situations where like you know with date with online dating when it would get to the stage of like meeting in person, right? Where I have to like overcompensate, right? To really oh show God. them like how I've, I felt like, you know, that pressure of like, I need to show them how independent I am, right? That like, you know, when they're with me, they're not, you know, there's, there's no obligation to be my caregiver, you know? <laughs> but like, I can actually do shit on my own. I can yeah. do this on my own. Like I, you know, like I start to overcompensate and be like, yeah, I do this and this and this. And like, you know, I live alone and, uh, you know, like I start to put that like almost at the forefront and be like, yeah, like I manage my care services. You know what I mean? Like I mentioned that within like the first in-person date after we had spoken for like a month, you know, to kind of like ease them and that's like a lot has to do with like internalized ableism as well you know that feeling that need to to show to show that you are quote unquote like normal <laughs> that you're like worthy of dating you know which is toxic in itself that mindset too you know well we often lack control and crave control in so many aspects of our life so mm. feeling like you also that control over your own intimate destiny is really frustrating when you when you feel like you know you're at someone else's whim and beyond that you're at society's whim to accept you first yeah no, straight up yeah man i i feel like i could talk to you guys forever and i i will i will i'll be bold to invite myself again for a part two someday because there's still a lot to for us to to talk about and unravel, you know, because I know you guys also talk about media and stuff and, yeah. uh, you know, movies and such. And I would love to talk about that in, at some point, you know, um, especially about, you know, how disabled folks are represented um, mm-hmm. in movies and such. So 
I I hope I get to to do this with you guys again soon. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're super busy. This is a shorter episode for us. And so I really do appreciate you carving some time out of your busy life to come on here. For sure, I know I speak for Jamie to say that we're happy to have you back on for a part um, two. Yes. Please do bring your harmonica, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. This has been a great conversation. There are so many other things I wanted to ask you. And so we'll save it for the next part. Please. But for now, if people want to follow you or slide into your DMs, how do they get in touch with you? Yes, um, they can follow because I, I, my social media, uh, especially for Facebook, uh, for Instagram, it's my band name. So it's U-T-C-H-O-I-R, so U-T-Choir. Yep. So that's my band name. Um, so they can follow me there, U-T-C-H-O-I-R. That's on Instagram. And they can slide into your DMs there too? They can slide into my DMs there too. Okay, cool. You know, I'm, I'm the only one managing that account. So. Cool. Um, and then Facebook, it's just Gift Schumer. I mean, then my initial middle name, and that's it, yeah. All right, so all of that will be in the show notes. But um, thanks again. Honestly, Jeff, this was super fun. I'm sad that we have to end it, but I'm yeah. really excited for the next part. Me too. Right thanks, uh, Jamie. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate it, guys. Take care, everyone. You too. Until next time. All righty. Bye. Bye.